thank you for downloading the Blue Moon podcast. Please give the show your support by becoming a backer. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon podcast. And welcome to this year's final Blue Moon podcast of the season, and it's our hastily thrown together live show. We've got a small Zoom audience who've all made a donation to the Manchester City fans' food bank support fundraiser to be here. And a quick tally before we uh, before we get going properly was that we've raised two hundred pounds already from this tonight. So well done, everyone. Um, I'm David Mooney, and I'm joined for this special episode by City fans Dan Burke. Good evening. And Chris Higginbottom. Good evening. The Daily Mail's Northern Football reporter Jack Gorn. Hello. And former City defender Neda Manua. Good evening, guys. So uh, I'm going to start uh, with the fans for this one. So, Dan, I'm going to start with you um, because I, I want to to kind of reflect on the season. And it's very easy, I think, to get hung up on having lost the Champions League final, especially with the manner that, that, it, that it was lost in. Um, and we are going to come to that, don't worry. But I think it's also important to remember that City won a League and Cup double this year. Yes, yeah, they did, yeah. I mean, I remember going into the season and thinking... My sort of, our chances in my mind of us winning the league this year were about 50-50 for me. You know, I thought Liverpool were going to be really good again. I thought maybe Chelsea were going to be good. You know, I thought maybe other teams might get involved. So I thought it was going to be difficult for City. And then they, they started well with that win at Wolves. And um, then there was that defeat to, to Leicester. And I, and I thought, you know, we probably had a 10% chance of winning the league at that point. It was, that, that was a huge blow to us, I thought. And I was starting to think, well, is this going to be like a transitional season? Um, is Pep going to stay? Obviously, he signed that contract at about November time, was it? Something like that, if I remember rightly. Um, and, you know, around the time of the, the West Brom draw and the draw at Old Trafford and all that, I was thinking, this, is, this was a bad idea. Why did we, why did we give them this, this new contract? Maybe we should have just moved past it and moved on after this season. And then, of course, we got it together in the second half of the season. We, we won the Carabao Cup, which is sort of taken as red these days, isn't it, really? We win that every <laughs> year. Um, and we went on to win the league at a canter, really, playing some really lovely football. You know, Pep really changed things up, really reinvented the team, reinvented his own tactics and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think it's been a great season, a great season. And we got to the Champions League final. You know, we'd never been that far before. We'd never been past the semi-final before. We had some great moments along the way. The Dortmund win, the PSG win. The final, you know, is an irrelevance in terms of how I feel about those games. We still had some great uh, memories from, from this season in the Champions League. And... Uh, I feel like we'll we'll be back in the Champions League one day again. You know, it's it's all part of the journey. It's all it's just another bump in the road, and uh, one day we'll look back and we'll win the Champions League, and we'll say, uh, "I appreciate it more." Uh, we'll, we'll draw upon that and enjoy it a lot more, and it'll feel more satisfied. Yeah, Chris, I mean, how do you feel the season has gone? I mean, like you referenced that, like the tech issues we've had at the start of this, that it, that it's almost like the season started well and dropped off, but. Like 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 Dan says, it's been like the second half of the season. Nobody was really expecting that. Definitely not. I wasn't expecting it. Um, everyone I was speaking to were very much pessimistic. Um, Pep's head was on the block for all to see, it would seem. And uh, yeah, the turnaround was pretty remarkable. It's really weird, weird season given that the lack of break from one season to the next and the way it started and it started to peter out and then we just absolutely beasted the the sort of latter part of it and then yeah to to sort of 
bolt on to the end of such a magnificent Premiership season, the FA Cup kind of odd shuffle off stage left in a really sort of ignominious fashion and then Champions League final I, I mean it just kind of it was such a weird damp squib of a the way it happened when everyone looked at the team sheet and just went he's not done it again has he <laughs> and you know it's like you acknowledge his genius on the one hand and then on the flip side of that it's like you know I mean it's human to her but how can someone be so almost predictably fallible in, in that way. I, it's hard to reconcile. I don't, I've got mixed feelings about it. I'm massively chuffed, amazed that we won the league um, and the sweet, sweet Carabao. I uh, love that. <laughs> but yeah, the way the way we sort of went out of the FA Cup and the way we lost the Champions League, I can't help but feel a little bit a little bit upset about it. I've not even posted in any of the, the WhatsApp groups that I'm in about, about it. I've just like had to take a bit of a step back from it all. I'm but glad no, we... it's nice to be reminded that we did win the league, and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, we, we're actually <laughs> yeah. really good. Aren't we? I, I'm glad that this is your therapy session then tonight. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not going to lie, get it all out in the opening in one go. Um, Nedham, you're, you're always telling me to calm down about City and, and and just kind of keep my feet on the ground and not get too carried away by the lows and the highs and all that of the season. How how do you rate this season for City? Yeah, I think as everyone's been saying, there it certainly has been crazy. I think at the start of the year. People had some hope, you know, maybe it was 50-50 and then the start was there and City was struggling. You know, you're looking at them sort of like halfway up the table, people saying they can't score goals and stuff like this. And, you know, you, could, you couldn't help but think, well, it seems like change is going to come, especially, you know, if you're an older City fan, you, you've felt some lows before. And for some reason, even when you've got everything potentially there to go your way, you still always fear the worst. Uh, but for City, I think the way they turned it around and the fact that, like, you know, we talk about them having a good second half of the season or whatever, for a third of the season, they couldn't have been better because they literally won every single game. You know, looking back, I don't I don't expect to see that again in my lifetime. They won every single game for literally two, three months. And that is absolutely insane. And the crazy thing about it is, is, is that's what they needed to do to win a league title. So you couldn't, you shouldn't really expect to see stuff like that. So it felt special, I think, to be able, for me personally, to be able to go into the stadiums, you know, to be doing work and to see the way they were playing and all that stuff. It was, you know, it was incredible. They were far, by far and away the best team through that spell. And it got them through to the end of the season. As you know, we can talk about the FA Cup semi-final and the Champions League and errors and this, that and the other. But, you know, uh, will we go into detail about the Champions League final? Because I've got some takes on that. Will we go yes, into we detail can. We, we are, we are going to come to that. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> okay, so overall then the season, to finish with a league trophy and a league cup trophy, after the league trophy is the year after Liverpool won the Premier League. You know, let's be clear. This has been essentially a two-horse race essentially for the last three years and there's no guarantee that City are going to come through this next year and win it again, especially given the fact that Liverpool and Man United were top around Christmas time. You know, and City were nowhere near that. They weren't in the race for anything. So to talk about 38-game season, the consistency needed to do it. City hit that and they were exceptional. But yeah, it could have, it feel like the season could have gone just that little bit better, but Ultimately, you know, the quest for four trophies is something that, you know, most teams will never feel. And let's be clear, when the last ball was kicked on on Saturday, City had played in every game but one that was available to be played in a season. And that ultimately, you know, for them to even be close to that stage, it's, it does show that they've been exceptional overall this year. And we should never forget that. 
Yeah, Jack, the um, the guys there have also referenced uh, Guardiola and and how he's been. Um, I feel like we've seen a change in him this year. He feels like like the start of the season, he was really tetchy and really, really kind of not happy with things. Um, and obviously they start winning games. It's a lot easier to become happy with things. I understand that. But um, what what do you think his impact has been on this season? Well, he was tetchy because people like me were asking about his contract every week. So he's kind of <laughs> wasn't going to be... Um, joyful with that. I kind of it looked like a weight had been come off his shoulders when he signed the contract because basically he's able to manage with impunity. Everyone knew where they stood. I mean, he said it in the last few weeks. I think it's like everyone knows where they stand. Like the the media don't talk about his job because everyone knows that he's going to be the manager. But equally, the player. Well, someone said to me when I was having a ring round before we do like the end of season wrap ups. They said basically that it was just adapt or die for the players. You're either with him or you're not. Um, I'm, I know we'll come on to it later in the show, but I'm sure in the next few weeks we'll find out which of the players that are with him and the ones that aren't. But he's been given that kind of... Uh, he's just got assurances over his own job, which means that he can run the club how he sees fit, uh, which is a perfect situation for, for a manager to be in. And he'll be given money to strengthen and they'll be able to kind of change... Uh, change the squad how, how they see fit um, but I think the other thing with him and everyone talks about quite rightly talks about tactical tweaks and you know how he reads the game and all that sort of stuff I think he's an exceptional man manager I think that to drive that team onto 100 points in the first title winning season and then to defend it is an incredible achievement from a man management point of view and he's done the same thing this season they were they were, on, they were down and out in November um, and he's managed, and it's you don't just change your performances. And Nedden was saying like they won every game over two or three months. It's just exceptional. You don't do that by just changing the tactics. You do that because you've got everyone pulling in the right direction. Yeah. Um, then obviously we get to that Champions League final. Um, Chris, you you've been kind of processing what's happened. Um, have you processed it yet? Are you uh, are you at peace with how the game went? Um. I, again, it's a kind of a schizophrenic sort of attitude that I've got to it. I realise how spoiled it, it can sound to be like, oh, we've not won the Champions League <laughs> final after a season like that. And, it, it, you know, it's a reasonable point of view to say, well, how, how dare you, thing like that. Not that anyone necessarily is doing that here, but you feel that about yourself. Like, have, have, I, got, have I got the right to be uh, so peeved about it? But, you know... As Dan was saying, you've got to put it down to experience. Um, I, I've kind of processed it, yeah, but I just need um, the next part of the, the football cycle to kind of push it out of my head and just get the next <laughs> one in there and then let's let's go. Like, Yeah, Dan, it's, uh, I, I guess part of the problem is that it is the last game of the season. So it, it feels like it ends on on such a low after like even even though you've won a league title and the and the league cup in there they've you know played some excellent football in in that spell of uh, of, of winning games they have lost the last game of the season and so we all come away from the season going well oh, if only they'd won that one more game you, you know what I mean yeah it, it it felt like it was it was written in the stars didn't it, it felt like the stars had aligned for us finally you know we wanted to win this so badly. And it felt like I'd, I'd not really thought about how I was going to process defeat before the game. I could, I could only visualise us winning this game. And, 
you know, I'm as disappointed as anybody, but I think you do have to kind of contextualise that disappointment and, and how you deal with that disappointment is important as well, you know. Um, I'd like to think that it was all down to Pep's team selection and um, if he'd picked the team that we all wanted to, him to pick, then we would have won the game and everyone goes home happy, but it doesn't necessarily work like that. Like, you know, I thought the, the team selection was a bit odd, but there is an idea in there somewhere that made sense to me before the game, you know, trying to break Chelsea down with a few more attacking players, getting Sterling on the ball a bit more, um, playing Gundogan in, in the holding midfield position, someone who can spread the ball a bit better than, than Rodri and Fernandinho. It wasn't the worst idea in the world. It wasn't very effective in the end. And I think you just have to you know, remember that Guardiola really wanted to win this game as well. He picked a team that he thought would win the game. It didn't work out. It doesn't always work out. But 90% of the time he gets it right. You know, We won the league, as we said. We won the League Cup. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not ready to sort of really criticise him too much. I just think it's one of those things, you know, we lost the final against a team who were better than us on the night and I'm disappointed that we didn't score, disappointed that we didn't create many chances, but I'm not disappointed that, you know, with any kind of lack of effort on City's part or anything, they got all the way to the final, wasn't quite right and we move on. Yeah. It's not against a lot of whipping boys, is it? I mean, Chelsea yeah. were absolutely fantastic. So yeah, it's uh, it's time now though for mm. for the Nedim Anua hot take machine. Uh, what have you got for us, Nedim? <laughs> oh, are you ready? Are you ready? Okay. Um, so just just a few things because like I was lucky to be there at the stadium and I was watching it from up high and I was just as I say looking at things from a tactical standpoint and to talk about it from the position of um, of an ex professional. Yeah. So City are a very good team with Fernandinho in it. They're, you know, they're a good team with Rodri in it. They're a good team when they play with that six in general. And I think if Fernandinho played, I think that allows uh, Gundogan's ceiling within the game itself to be higher than it was from playing in the six. Because Gundogan's finished the league season as the top scorer for the club. So you want to see him higher up. And obviously that might come at the expense of Sterling. So maybe you put phone out there, so on and so forth. But here's the big but. For me, there were certain players within that team who probably left the field having played their worst game of the whole season. And that there, you know, if, you, if, we, if you're listening to the narratives around the game as a player who was on that field, basically what's being said is that, you know, if Fernandinho doesn't play, then there's no chance you could ever have a good game. Because as far as being a player goes, there are different levels of it. You can have a great game. You could just have an okay game. You can have a bad game. But somebody not being there on the field doesn't mean you'll have a bad game. You could put a striker in at centre-back. It doesn't mean he'll have a bad game. But for some of the stuff in terms of what City were doing, it was like, it was alarming. Like I was seeing, say, for example, Bernardo Silva just running through the midfield, then he'd kick it out of play. You know, Stone stood for a bit, was falling over. He looked really anxious. You know, Walker at times was looking through, trying to push it down the line, but it didn't really serve a purpose, you know. Like obviously, Sterling didn't, couldn't really get the best from James after the first 10 minutes. On all that stuff there, you know, he could have picked a different team, but the individuals themselves were losing their own battles against the people who were across from them. And that's the thing that alarmed me the most because, like I say, we could talk about tactics, but that team that he put out could have won that game if they played better, but they didn't play better. And I don't think the sole reason for that was because he didn't pick a six to play the six. I don't think it was solely because, say, Sterling's on that side. Because, say, for example, Mares, you know, these, these, I'm naming all these players and have had an exceptional season. Like, Mares probably had his worst game of the season in the biggest game of the season, and you didn't see anything from him. But was that because Fernandinho was, wasn't there in the middle? For me, probably not. Fernandinho's a great leader. Somebody who's felt that type of stress before in like um, Copa America finals, all that type of stuff. But, you know, that was my biggest disappointment as a City fan being in that stadium was seeing the way that some of those players played 
And knowing that it's a Champions League final, it's never guaranteed to go back there. You look at a club like Chelsea have invested millions upon millions since Abramovich has taken over and they've made it to the final three times in essentially just under 20 years. So for us as City to be seen and thinking, oh, it's a big disappointment. Like this isn't like the league where you have to roll over the same teams year in, year out to guarantee success. Next year, it might be buying in the group stages, might be Inter Milan in the next round. It might be Real Madrid, it might be Barca. You know, you're never really guaranteed. So, you know, I was disappointed in the tactical thing. You know, it, it is a conversation, but I don't think it's the only one purely because, as I say, some of those players on that big occasion, you know, as I say, Gundogan could have played better when he was higher, but there were lots of players who were in the familiar position for them and they didn't perform. And to add to that, I think even if Gundogan or Rodri played, Chelsea still play in the same manner. And from the top, their tactics, it felt like, was to just try and make sure the ball got funneled out wide where you'd have Reese James, Ben Chilwell, plus a midfielder or another centre-back ready to try and close down whatever space that was available to them. And, you know, in that instance then, that's when you need your wingers to play well. But they didn't play well. And that isn't, in my opinion, solely due to, say, Fernandinho not playing. But, you know, that's, that's one of many, many takes that I have, which I'm sure uh, I'll speak <laughs> about at some stage. I thought, to be honest, I thought the occasion, they were just overawed by the occasion. That's what it looked like, sat there. Yeah. I was like, my God, like, I, I was really shocked, Same. sat on the ground. Same, yeah. I was, I mean, it was, you know, when, when people were talking about, oh, there's going to be a surprise in the, in the team selection in the hours before the game, and you can't, you know, the team comes out, you, I am, you're surprised. Um, but I just think the, nervous, the nervousness that they showed, particularly in the first 15 minutes, just transmitted into the stands as well. Mm. And that didn't help. So on one side, you've got Thomas Tuchel and Rudiger whipping up the Chelsea fans throughout the 90 minutes, really whipping them up. And City, there was kind of it, just the whole, the fans, the backroom staff, the players on the pitch, It was just, everyone was really, really nervous. And that just meant they weren't able to go and play their own game. There, there was too, I think there was too much fear in, in the game. And, the, and the, you know, you look at the goal, I've not, I've not seen a highlight of the goal back, I've not watched the highlights, but it looked to me that every single man got pulled out of position. And I don't think, I mean, Nedham will know far more than I do, but <laughs> I, I don't think that's because Gundogan's there. I think that's just because yeah. Chelsea's runners pull them all over the place. It wasn't place. the first time it happened, was it? No. In that game. But, you know, that for that goal, the, the thing which I know City were doing was in terms of a tactical sort of press, because with Chelsea, like we say Chelsea played well, but Chelsea, what they did, they defended well and stuck to the game plan. But there were players within that Chelsea team who have a far higher ability level than they showed in that game. But they did what they had to do. You know, their front three, they made sure the ball never went in between them. It always went outside them. You know, that's, that's them doing their jobs. But for that goal itself, um, tactically, the fullbacks for City in Walker and Zinchenko, they're responsible for getting out to the wing-backs when the ball would be clipped from either the centre-back or the goalkeeper. But for that particular instance, Walker was supposed to go out there, but he left it too late, but he still decided to go. And from that point, he was in no man's land because every time they have to shuffle across, the whole back four is supposed to come. So the first bit of, like, the first error was in Walker in deciding to go because ultimately, if he decides not to go, then the club, the team can just drop off and there's no real try at aggressive press anymore. But he went, and then next thing, the other two centre-backs out position, Zinchenko, he was in the wrong position as well. So now you can apply no pressure, but you're trying to go front foot. And ultimately, you know, you get, you get pit, it's the Champions League final. If you're not up, coming up against a team, you can punish you when you make a mistake like that. You know, you've got no chance. And it was a, it was a shame because it, it happened maybe once or twice. But overall, like, you know, we look at it, we talk about Chelsea playing well. Werner had a couple of good chances. 
But Chelsea had eight shots on goal. They had two shots on target. So when we talk about sixes and ball possession and all this and all that, I think as a City fan looking from the stands, you could feel the threat. But when you really like break it down, it's just football. They didn't really have as many attempts and whatever as we probably felt. So for me, the biggest disappointment, as I say, was, you know, for City, they just didn't perform. If like in the years gone by when we've played against Spurs and they've had a ton of chances and it doesn't go in, you'd leave the game with a different feeling saying, oh, that's such a shame. You know, we deserve so much more. We've been robbed. But instead, you're leaving a stadium thinking we got what we deserved and we got what we deserved because we didn't play well. And that's the, that, that for me is the thing that probably stings the absolute most. Yeah, Chris, tell me honestly, um, like when you listen to Nedham talk about it like that, and especially when he says the phrase, it's just football, that's got to make you feel better, hasn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> don't know about that. There's shades of uh, Mancini there. To be <laughs> <laughs> um, but I can't, I can't argue with anything that, that he's just said. And that was, that was like my feeling on it when I, when, you know, when it, petered out in the way it did and you, you suddenly like you, it dawns on you like slowly doesn't it as the game draws to the conclusion you're like we're, we're not going to win this and as it as it happened that was my take well at least we didn't deserve it <laughs> so it, which is weird because you, you just like uh, Nedim referenced the Spurs game a couple of Liverpool games where you're like I'm going to minute the ref has like there's been like a four goal swing of terrible decisions here that really shouldn't have stood and I mean, I'm, I still feel that I'm still annoyed about a couple of those Liverpool games. Um, <laughs> never mind the Champions League final. But yeah, I came out of it thinking, well, you know, we didn't deserve it. And But does that make it feel any better? No, because of the other points that Nedham was saying <laughs> that the players didn't play as, as well as they could have. Like watching people run down blind alleys and try things that, that just there was a feeling that wasn't going to come off and you felt it, they felt it and it didn't work. And you're like, oh, it's not our day, is it? So I don't know. It's, I wouldn't say um, it makes it better, but hopefully it'll make it easier to, to get over. And if it's just down to nerves, then if we keep the majority of the group and we get there again soon, it, it'll hopefully stand us in good stead. You see stats pop up all the time about clubs and players, and you want to know that exact thing about City. There's an answer. StatCity.co.uk Want to find out all of the players who played alongside club legends like David Silva, Sergio Aguero or Vincent Company? Or maybe you'd like to know which team found it hardest to score past Joe Hart. You can find out City's record in every competition, at every stadium, and under every manager. Just go to statscity.co.uk and browse away. That's statscity.co.uk. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. Dan, um, I mean, obviously, as you know, we we talk a lot during games and uh, and after games and stuff. And um, I, I'm not gonna not gonna lie. The people that know me will say that Saturday night was possibly the angriest I've ever been. Um, <laughs> you you seem quite. I didn't think you were capable of getting angry. I, I'm, I was very angry. I was very angry on Saturday night. Um, Dan, you. You seem to be the the kind of the the one that that stays the calmest, the longest out of the people that I know. If that makes sense, uh, like I, how have you processed all of this? Well, I'm well aware of the bad take amnesty you had on this podcast uh, a few months ago. You know, <laughs> I don't I don't want to get caught up in any of that nonsense. A few a few months down the line, no, like I said earlier, I'm, I was disappointed. I, 
I, I was I was a bit drunk on the night of the game and I was sort of happy in the haze of a drunken hour, I think, after the game and not really like, you know, I'm quite philosophical about it. I was thinking, well, we've lost this one, but we'll get to a Champions League final again. I'm very sure of that. And maybe as a team, we will be better equipped for it. Maybe, you know, the, the world will be better equipped for us to be in a Champions League final and more people can go to the stadium and it'll be better. And like I said, we'll, re- we'll reflect on this experience. Uh, I look back on it and, you know, say it was terrible, but, you know, we, we're over it now. We, we can we can be thankful for that experience that we went through that. So, yeah, I mean, I think with the team selection stuff, you can easily look at it and say it, w- it was wrong. You know, Guardiola, this overthinking stuff, I'm so tired of that now. We need to we need to move past that now. It's, it's such a nonsense. I mean, Guardiola will have watched hours and hours of footage of Chelsea before this game and decided that that was the way to approach the game. It didn't work out. That's football. Shit happens. Sometimes it doesn't. You know, you can easily, you know, envisage a scenario in your mind where he picks the best team and we go in and win the game. It's also, you know, you think about that chance that uh, Sterling had in the game where Edison punted the ball over the top and he's through on goal. If he was a bit more confident, he might have taken that chance and then him being included in the starting lineup is looked on a, as a masterstroke, isn't it? So I think too much of football analysis is kind of looking at the, the result and working backwards from there. I do think it's quite a random game sometimes and, and stuff happens that people never intended to happen and you just have to take it on the chin sometimes. It's a final and I think losing a Champions League final is a privilege. You know, we got to a Champions League final. I don't want to get all York away about it, but, you know, we never imagined that we would get this close to anything like this. We never imagined we would scale these heights and sometimes you do have to take a step back and say, yeah, it's not been too bad, has it, really? Yeah, Jack, uh, the, the I mean, the, the, the situation around the game as well is, I mean, we've been talking about, you know, whether players were nervous and, and, and the implications with the fans uh, and, and how that had kind of affected the mood in the uh, in the stadium. Um, the other side of it is, you know, the way City started, like Chris said, there, there, there's, there's sometimes when, you know, it doesn't matter how good City's team is, you get the impression there are games where they're just not going to score. And that was one of them. You got you got to half time and you thought, like, like how are they going to score in this game? It's very simple. People, people in midfield taking the taking the easy pass uh, and passing on responsibility to others. Um, and I thought there was too much responsibility placed on De Bruyne in the first half an hour. And when De Bruyne forces it, he's not at his best when he's forcing it. And I just felt he just wasn't quite wasn't quite there. I know I don't know whether he was. It was a game too far for him. I'm not, I'm not sure, but he was just like. He was nowhere near it first half. Um, and I think that kind of, you know, I've seen it before about it transmitting into the stands. I think that happens with the players as well. If you're like, if you're, I don't know, if you're Phil Foden, argument's sake, and you see De Bruyne, nothing's coming off for him. Like flicks are going out of play or he's getting blocked off by a set and he's not having a good game. That must impact on you as a as a teammate. Do you think you looked fit? I don't think he no, looked fit at all. I don't think he did. I was. But what, I mean, what? But what? What are you going to do? You can't. You can't no, not I, play him, can I you? I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um, it was just, yeah. It was, obviously, I'm not. I'm not a fan of supporting another club. But it was. It was a real. It was a real shame to see them turn in that performance, given where they'd been in November, and how they got to that final. They'd beaten some good teams to get to that final. You know, they didn't. They hadn't, you know, they didn't play glad back in every round, did they? Um, and it felt like they got over that. They've got over the hurdle, um, and I felt anything beyond the beyond the quarters was a free hit. In fact, I got la- I got laughed at on the radio the other week when I said before the Paris Saint Germain game, it's like it's a free hit, and they couldn't really comprehend what I was meaning. But I just think that's where City City are at in Europe. 
was like they just, I don't know, would, would you guys have just been happy to get to the last four and anything else is a bonus? Kind of, yeah. I mean, no one's under pressure to win the Champions League, I don't think, are they? And also, are Chelsea the best team in Europe? No. Are they even the second best team in Europe? I don't think so. So it's no real marker of anything. I think the league title is a bigger marker of where City are at as a team. And it's great that we got to the, the Champions League final this year. Hopefully we'll do one better and, and win it in future. But I'm not stressed out about winning the Champions League at any point. Well, evidence-based, Chelsea aren't the best team in England, are they? <laughs> but I think we are definitely under pressure to win the Champions League. Like The owners want it more than anything. I was quite, um, oh, I was envisaging us winning it and was thinking along the lines of uh, telling Al, I wasn't that bothered about it, uh, that we'd won it and it was all right in the leagues. Um, but yeah, it really kind of got to me and that wasn't the case. But I mean, if you wait for it out the way, we wouldn't have even been in it this year, would we? So, Well, <laughs> yeah, and it seemed that um, they'd used, they've already used up a lot of methods of uh, preventing us getting this far, but... <laughs> I don't know. We are under pressure to win it. I'd love to win it, and um, I don't know. It, it kind of looked mapped out for us a bit this year in terms of you know with the way the way it falls and then the way Paris played and I don't know Aguero's final game as well. It it, it all did, yeah. Um, Nedum, I, I just want to touch on the uh, the thought of from kind of a player's point of view. How how much does the the atmosphere in the stands from your own fans affect your performance? Um... I think it totally depends on the individual and the nature of the game itself. I think as uh, we were alluding to there, I think when you're looking around and you're seeing that it's an unfamiliar type of game for the players, you know, people have been, players and stuff, they've been very, very keen to have fans back in the stadiums and stuff like that. But there's two sides to that coin because I've been, I've played for so many teams, City included, where things aren't going well and you can hear the anxiety on the side. You start to hear, oh, and all this stuff and, you know, for City, maybe that's why they were trying things which maybe they haven't been doing for most of the season because there were people there and it was a direct feedback coming from somebody else other than the manager himself. So it doesn't doesn't necessarily affect people, but, you know, we could see it from the outside. City weren't playing well and Chelsea were very solid. So you're looking at the two things thinking, well, where's this goal going to come from? And when it's like that from the sidelines, you know, you, you probably don't sing in the same manner. You're not cheering the same things you were once cheering. And, and those guys on the field, they know it. They can feel they can feel the tension. You can always feel the tension in the stadium, whether you're on the field or in the stands. And ultimately, you know, like to talk about an, an older game, like in 2012, before um, before stoppage time came in, that last 10, 15 minutes there was probably, in terms of City's home performances, might have been what they're worst for the whole season because they were doing things which they weren't set to be doing. They were doing things which didn't get them to the top of the league. And it's carnage, it's chaos. You feel, you do feel that sort of anxiety. And it was a, it was a shame. It was a shame because as, um, as we've been saying, you know, we all pictured the storyline of, you know, City making it to the final. We all make it. Aguero comes on. Like when he came on, I'm like, Sergio's obviously going to score. That's what Sergio <laughs> does. He always scores against Chelsea. We're going to win this. We're going to do it. But then it doesn't happen. And to be honest as well, the, 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 the probably the biggest low of the night after the Chelsea goal was when KDB was limping off as well. Because I thought, right, okay. He, you'd say he's the main man who can create something out of nowhere and the team doesn't need to be playing well for him to just make something happen. And, you know, from when he went off, it just didn't, didn't feel the same at all. But yeah, I think as players, you do, you do feel that tension, but it's in the same way. It's, just, it's the opposite side of the coin, isn't it? Because when things are going well, like I, I'll reference two games in particular. 
for me personally, at City playing in the second leg of the UEFA Cup quarterfinal against Hamburg at home, we went a goal down. That atmosphere in the stadium was one of the best I've ever played in. And then when I was at QPR, we played in the playoff semi-final against Wigan uh, in the championship. And it was like we had 5,000 fans outside the stadium waiting for us as the team bus arrived. You got into the stadium. They were singing and rocking for the whole time. And in both of those games, you know, for the championship one, we got to the playoff final. In the Hamburg one, I think we won the game with 10 men. But you never feel like you're going to lose because once it gets rolling, it's incredible. But like I say, the other side of it is you can feel the anxiety from when, uh, from when your team's not playing as well as they could do. Yeah, uh, it's certainly a message to City fans then, because uh, <laughs> if there's one thing I, I know a lot of us feel is anxiety pretty much every week <laughs> yeah. anyway. Um, let's. I want to. I want to flip this first part of the podcast back to to the, the positive of the season because um, we we spent a, a good chunk of it there on the Champions League final, and it is one part of what is otherwise a, a, a very a very successful season for City. Um, Jack, we, where do you think the turning point came? Um, is it as simple as as signing Ruben Diaz? Uh, no, but that is a massive contributing factor to it. Um, not just because of his defensive attributes, but because of his leadership. Didn't have anyone, didn't have anyone talk, talking really the the year before. Um, the turning, but if you talk about turning points, I think the manager says the turning point was the was the West Brom game at home. That you know. I don't think a game has ever been talked about quite so much uh, over a season. Um, they were like they were absolutely dire that night, um, and he says the turning point was there. The players kind of have a different view, and they say that it was the team meeting after New Year's after uh, New Year's Day, I think, trading on New Year's Day, where Fernandinho laid into them all. That was that was um, ahead of the Stamford Bridge game, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and then they were like, then they were. Amazing, weren't they, at Stamford Bridge? I mean, just absolutely exceptional. And I think the the Fernandinho aspect is a big one. They've actually got a proper captain this year. David Silva. David Silva's many things. One of the you know one of the finest midfielders ever to have played in the Premier League, but he's not a captain. And I th- I th- they missed that sort of leadership last season, which Fernandinho and he understands his role that he's not going to play every week. Um, I know he came. He started playing quite a, quite a bit in the in the last couple of months of the season. Before that, he was really in and out. Um, but he's still been that kind of figurehead for the, for the players to, to look up to, um, which maybe has taken a little bit of kind of a little bit of pressure off, off Pep from, a, from that point of view as well. Yeah. But D, I mean, obviously Diaz, like Diaz player of the season, isn't he? so I mean, he's massive, a massive, massive impact. Yeah. Well, that's torpedoed my next question. Cause Chris, I was going to say, is there anybody that Good. gets in ahead of him? <laughs> Head of Diaz for player of the season. Oh, um, not really. Yeah, it's, I mean, he's, the accolade that he's picked up kind of speaks for itself. Um, I mean, who would you have in there? You've you mentioned in the in the notes uh, from memory, Mares, um, Stones. Stones had a great resurgence. Still looks <laughs> flickers of kind of nervous energy and uh, susceptibility now and again in certain games, which kind of manifested in the final as well. Uh, but great season, good to see him back. We were a bit worried about the impact on, on the port, but um, no, Diaz is just head and shoulders. And as Jack said, not just for his football ability, but his leadership quality. And um, he's showed that at uh, 
Benfica as well. Like some of the team talks that he's I've only seen one actually, but as an example of a team talk to to be filmed in, in the dressing room, like flipping heck, that was uh, you know, if that's what he's if that's his general patter, then we could probably get a good game out of me. <laughs> um, Dan, it's. It, I mean, the other, the other side of Diaz's game is is um, like like Chris has alluded to there, the the leadership part of it, um, even to the point of being able to pull his teammates along the floor by their head. So, I, I mean, you can't argue with a man who's prepared to go to those lengths, can you? Yeah, that's up there. Well, the moments of the season, that is. <laughs> I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, for him to come in uh, as a new signing, that I don't think many of us expected a great deal from him. Really, I was. A little bit skeptical about him. Obviously, they, they, they went for Kulibali for most of the summer, and then there was that Jules Kunde kind of rumor going around. And then it was like, oh, Diaz, we're getting him now, are we? Our third choice defender. Like, that's not going to uh, work out very well, is it? So, for him to come in and hit the ground running like he did um, in a new league, in a new country during a pandemic, you know, where they've been away from his family and all that kind of stuff for a lot, a lot of the season, that will, have, that will have taken its toll on him. And he's still only 24, and only recently turned 24, which is bizarre, isn't it, really? You know, because he, he seems wise beyond his years, both as a player and as a person. So, yeah, I think I think he, he's he's fantastic. I would probably just say that he he just edges Gundogan as the player of the season for me. And Gundogan's another one who I didn't see performing the way he did going into the season. You now I've always been a bit of a skeptic of his, really. And um, you know, if if you told me he was leaving last summer, I wouldn't have been too upset about it, really. But I think he really, really stepped up in, in De Bruyne's absence during that period when we went on that long winning run. You know, ended the season as our top scorer. Um, scored some really important goals. And there was a point, I think, probably around the time of the win away at Anfield, uh, what was that, February time, where I thought he would be the PFA player of the year. And I think because his form, his goal-scoring form sort of dried up a little bit towards the end of the season, people have kind of forgotten what a good season he had. But I think he was our real kind of pivotal clutch player, if you want to call it that, at a really crucial point in the season. So, um, yeah, I think, he, I think he definitely deserves some recognition for that. Yeah, well, let's let's talk to Nedham about the defending side of it because uh, Nedham, I've seen it up close as we were talking about before about what it, what what, uh, what what a Premier League defender can do. Uh, what uh, what impact has Diaz had on the team, and I mean especially John Stones as well. Yeah, he's he's been incredible. As as guys were saying, you know, you didn't know much about him You've, apart from the fact that City wanted Cooler Bali, they wanted someone else, and this guy's coming in, and I thought, well. We'll see how this goes because ultimately, you know, in the past they've, they've bought centre backs before. He's done well for a bit, but then you know, essentially come and gone. But the way he touched on and through that period where City were excellent, you know, we weren't talking about about the fact that we were scoring three, four goals every single week. Is the fact they were having clean sheets. Those clean sheets weren't just because they had all the ball and whatever. It's because here's a guy who's like throwing his head at everything. You know, he's trying to tackle this guy, trying to tackle that guy blocking shots with his face, his chest, his whatever, you know what I mean? Whatever it took to stop the ball going into his goal. And that type of energy was something which we probably haven't seen properly in City for, you know, for a long time. And in fact, for as good as Vincent Company was, I don't think he's somebody who's throwing absolutely everything at, at the ball in the same way Diaz has done. I think he felt very, 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 very unique and very important through that spell. And lo and behold, the way that he approached the game, was infectious to all those people around him to the point where the pinnacle for me was when they were playing PSG in that second leg and everybody's blocking a shot and you're seeing celebrations from a back four as if somebody's just gone and scored a goal down the other end, which has saved them a game. And usually we see that from like the old school type Italian teams where defending is everything. So to, to have had that and for it to have essentially, you know, almost been triggered by that player who came in for the for his very first season in England you know, it was it was absolutely incredible, and you see it now. And 
like I say, now we celebrate now him blocking a shot the same way you might celebrate, say, someone coming inside and with one in the top corner, because that's that's Ruben Diaz. You know, we love Ruben Diaz. He's he's everything. And best of all, for all the positive traits that he has, one of the biggest ones, apart from availability, is the fact that he doesn't make mistakes. I think in the season, I probably remember one which maybe led to a goal. But aside from that, he's on it all the time. You know what I mean? It's not like sometime defending, fair weather defending, all the time. And best of all, from a foreign player coming into England, it doesn't matter whether the player, person he's playing against is six foot four or five foot eight, great with his feet or great in the air. He's 100% pressing them for the whole game. And I love that because I've seen plenty of players come from different leagues and not like the physical aspects, but he absolutely loves it. And at 23 slash 24, you know, that's a really exciting player to have in the camps at City, I feel. Yeah. Jack, what was the line from, from your interview with him? He, uh, he he wants to make the opposition suffer. What was it? No. What was it? God, slept since then. Does it feel helpless or something like that? I want, yeah, I want to have the... I, I love having the power to make the opposition feel powerless or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. He's just like, honestly, 25 minutes with him on Zoom, the guy was like coming through the screen at me. <laughs> Jesus. Like, it's just like so intense um like very nice bloke but really really intense doesn't like talking about himself i was like look he's talking about blowing smoke up someone's ass before like that's what i was trying to do for 25 minutes he won't have it <laughs> at all um he's just quite quite likable but he knows how good he is that's the he's got that kind of you watch him play he's got that kind of swagger and he, he know in much the same way that the company had that he just he he knows that he's a very very good player, um, and it was funny actually. I was kind of doing a feature on uh, the guys from Benfica before the Euros that are going to play in the Portugal squad. So uh, Cancelo, Silva, and Diaz, and they were the guys at Benfica were telling me that when Diaz was in the under twenty threes or the under eighteens they were having to tell him to stop shouting at everybody. <laughs> so he was like playing centre half. And he was like wanting to shout at the striker and he was like trying to tell, like direct everything. And, and they had to kind of coach him to say, look, only by all means be a leader and, you know, speak up, but only kind of lead the players in your zone. So like you, you fall back next to you or you centre half or you centre midfielder because he was just charging around everywhere because he's got all that energy. Um, so I think they did quite a good, it sounds like Benfica did a really good job just honing his honing his skills when he was younger which is why that's kind of why we're seeing now someone who is a ready-made captain as Dan says at at the age of 23-24 yeah um, I want to finish this this first part of the show by again looking looking for the fans because um it's been a difficult year it's been the first full season of uh, of football behind closed doors in the pandemic situation um uh, we, I, I remember Dan talking last season on on the live show, and you know all the way through the through the end of the season, just about how how football was quite secondary to what was going on. And then obviously City won the league this season, and I feel a bit differently now for some reason. I can't really quite put my finger on that, um, but it has it's been important for us, hasn't it, to be able to to to, to enjoy watching City again this year. Yeah, I definitely went through that period of not caring who won the league to suddenly I really cared about who was going to win the league when <laughs> we were storming to the top of the table. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it, it, there was a point this year, you know, deep into lockdown when I suddenly had like, you know, a good idea of 
every supermarket around me because that was the only place I could go to. So I had a, a ranking of my favourite supermarkets in the area because there was nothing else going on in my life. There was that and Manchester City. And I was kind of living for those games. And I, w- I was living from moment to moment, really. And they really stepped up for us, the team, this year. I think I think uh, Adam Carter said this on our podcast a few, few weeks back. I think the team really delivered for us this year at a time when there wasn't much going on in the world. It was quite sad. It was quite depressing. And we had these football matches to look forward to and um, a team that was performing brilliantly and winning every game and, you know, really looking forward to every game and enjoying the performances and feeling good and talking to my friends about it afterwards. It really kept me going at times and that cannot be understated, I don't think. So um, hopefully we're getting back to some sort of normality now and, and this is kind of the end of this period. Um, but I think we more than a lot of fans, we can look back on this period with a bit of fondness. Yeah, Chris, it's it has been one of those things that we can look forward to in the in the last few months, hasn't it? And the, you think back to the start of the season. I remember, I remember quite easily thinking, like around about the time of that West Brom game. Oh God, City are playing midweek again. I'm, I have to watch the game. <laughs> Whereas now I'm thinking, when's the next? When's the next game? They're playing really well. When is the next game to watch? Yeah, it's it's a bit odd, and well, it's a bit, it's not odd really. It's understandable, but you know, you're saying that your attitude changed relating to how well we were doing. I was chatting to a United fan, um, not something I practice uh, <laughs> that often, but this was a few months ago and he was saying, oh, well, I think it's out of order that um, the the footballers get to get to go and play and, you know, they get to go and basically live life as normal. It shouldn't be allowed. And I, I was like, well, there's thousands of people who are really you know, it's like a welcome boon to their mental health that this is actually happening. And that's absolutely true. Um, it's It's been really important. It makes you realise how important being at the game is as well, though, because as important as it is, it's obviously nowhere near the same. The question of um, ballots came up about going to the game and a lot of people are, oh, yeah, really, I'm going to, really go for it and really want to want a ticket but I was thinking if I'm part of the reason I go to the game isn't just to watch City in fact a lot of the time watching City over the years has been the absolute worst part of going to football <laughs> um, present company accepted uh, obviously but um, you know apart from the Aguero game whereby I would have gone on my own just because I wanted to see his last game, assuming that I wasn't going to go to the final, which I wasn't able to. But yeah, I, I really, really have valued talking about it and watching it, but I wouldn't go to the game if I wasn't going to be going with people that I go to the game with, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I've sort of gone around, around the houses a bit there. But um, yeah, as important as it is, I think it also shows the emphasis of how important it is to actually be able to go and, and mix and mix properly. And um, yeah, it was it was... Better than now, but roll on uh, next season in a bit of normality. Yeah. Well, uh, we're going to finish the first part of the show by uh, reviewing the charity bet. As you know, we do a charity bet on the podcast. Uh, We've now been doing it for five seasons, and this was our second best ever season. Um, We started in Guardiola's first year, 16-17, where we raised £1,350. We couldn't quite get past that this year. Uh, We managed £1,185. All of that money is going to the Christie, which is a cancer treatment hospital in South Manchester. Um, And I've got a little bit of data for you guys, uh, because I know 
know you've all uh, you've, you've all you've all tried your hardest throughout the season. Um, we had 17 correct predictions out of a possible 61. So uh, 27% of the games uh, we we got a correct prediction on. Um, the person with the most correct was Adam Carter at Stat City on uh, Twitter. He got three correct and put £225 into the kitty on his own. Uh, the biggest win of the season, though, actually came from an opposition fan. Uh, it was David Downey of the uh, Everton podcast, The Blue Room. He uh, he added £100. Um, 35% of the money came from the cup competitions. Uh, 47% of the uh, winning bets were actually on two nil score lines. So if you'd, if you'd gone through the whole season, just picking two nil, we might've just done it. We might've done uh, better on that one. And uh, 52% of them were on away games. So uh, maybe that's uh, maybe city were easier to read away from home. I don't know, uh, but well done everybody. It's 1,185 pounds for the Christie. Please give us your backing patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast so now we look ahead through the euros and into next season and after that we're going to take some of your questions so get thinking and uh, we'll be with you soon all those in the uh, attendees or the zoom just uh, use the raise hand function and we'll come to you a bit later on um the first place to start i think is uh, is with the squad uh because jack we've seen reports that there are some players that are not particularly happy um and there are some surprising names on the list so what do you make of the situation there um, yeah, there are unhappy players, and for as you know, I was talking about how good his man management was earlier. That's kind of the way he does manage him does mean that those that aren't playing are going to be unhappy because he doesn't really tell people why he's made decisions. So I suppose like things can fester a little bit. I mean, you look at Sterling, Laporte, Jesus, the three for me that aren't very pleased with. Without it's gone this season, um, and they don't—they never want unhappy players at the club. But I think the suggestion that they're—I wouldn't agree with the suggestion that they're definitely looking to cash in on them. But I think if they turn around to the club and said, "I think my time's done," then that would be the point where they probably look for look for a buyer. Um, there are some. There's some other surprising surprising names. Bernardo was a was a big surprise. Um, I mean, I've not heard that personally. I spoke to I spoke to him very briefly last week, um, and didn't kind of get the sense that he was particularly unhappy. Um, but you just never know, do you? It's going to be such an interesting summer. I mean, they could they could do loads, or they could do not a lot. Um, and at the moment, we're not quite. Well, they're going to sign a striker, but beyond that, we're not quite sure whether. Greenish is going to get done or whether the they've got a small pot of money for a left back but you would assume that Grealish and a left back are dependent on people leaving and the players that are unhappy are worth a lot of money and I don't know whether there's going to be that many clubs or there aren't that many clubs that can that can afford how much City will think they're worth yeah, Nedham, what's what's it like from a player's point of view uh, when 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 your form's not quite what you want it to be, and you know the season hasn't quite ended how you want it, or you're not quite in the team? Is it is it hard when the manager doesn't engage with you? Um, yes, but to provide some sort of wider context to these reports which are coming out, like that sentiment is shared up and down the, through the leagues, because ultimately, you know, you look at players who play the game you'd find very, very few that are happy to not be playing. And when you look at City, the strength this year, obviously, for as much as they've got incredible talent, I think their squad this year was better than anybody else's. 
but that's a gift and a curse because it means that he can rotate at certain times and he would do. But City recruit players who are capable of playing week in, week out for most teams in the world. So if you're somebody who's not doing that, but City have brought you in for 30, 40, 50 million, you know, you have a sense of pride, you have a sense of ego and, you know, you are going to be disappointed because you know that you can be doing it regardless of whether your form's good or bad or indifferent. You can be playing week in, week out in the Premier League because you look around and, you know, you could talk, look talk about the City team specifically, but you look around the league and see lots of people playing week in, week out who you're probably a better player than. So it does hurt you, it does affect you. And to talk about my own side of that, I think it was, and because I, I spoke with Mike Richards about this actually on the Monday Night Club the other day, we played against, um, I think I spoke with him about it, we played against Man United and, like uh, under Sven Goran Eriksson and they won, I think Giovanni scored. And I remember think, I was on the bench and I was thinking, this is brilliant. We've been United. This is it. We're on the rise. All this stuff. Then I left the stadium, got home, and I was like, "They won," because I didn't play. And all of a sudden, you're faced with the, the the thought of like, "Well, it's great that we've won and everything's going up and we've gone up in the table." But if you're not a part of the success itself, you'll never really feel like you are part of it, you know. And that's a tough position to be in because some of these players we speak about, you know, these are exceptional players. These are players who'll be playing in the European Championships. Players who. In the next year, we're playing in World Cups and all this stuff. And like for Raheem Sterling, yes, he fell out of form. But then he's also got Phil Foden playing ahead of him, who's now like on the rise that we've never seen before. But Sterling is plenty good enough to be able to play in the Premier League for a league-winning team. So it's, it's, um, it's a tough situation to be in. But it's, as I say, it's a perfectly normal one. And these issues which have been mentioned now, they've probably existed for the duration of the time that, say, City have been in the Premier League regardless anyway and had a decent squad within it. So it's just going to be another, I think it's going to be a, no, a normal summer. And yeah, it's, it's tough, you know, and I think you can split players into two categories here. And this is where you probably need to give credit to the squad that City have now. Because, you know, obviously the manager helps, but the players themselves go a long, long way. Because players are always going to be unhappy when they're not playing. But some players can be toxic and some players can be supportive. And what the fact that you've not heard reports of players kicking, kicking bins about, sacking off training, turning up late, doing whatever. It shows that they're unhappy, but they're supportive because they wanted to try and achieve something together. And I think that is uh, something where I have to give credit to all those players because, you know, they, they, they are all capable of playing week in, week out. But the fact of the matter is, you know, they're all great professionals as well. And that gives credit to City in terms of the recruitment and, you know, some to Pep as well. Although, you know, I don't know exactly what it's like as a man manager, but, you know, those players are good and those players deserve to be playing somewhere. But unfortunately, the gift of having such a deep squad is, as Pep will say himself, every week you tell 11 players you're going to play, but you're looking at 10 others saying, I'm sorry, but not this week for you. And before you know it, one week turns to two, turns into a whole season. And you wonder to yourself, well, why am I here? And sorry, just one last point. Sorry for talking so much. When, <laughs> talk away, talk away, mate. <laughs> with City, this is a really interesting case because I think it was from when the money, the bigger money first came in, when players would come in, say, especially from teams in England, and they'd come for big money and they'd be earning big money. Everything's great whilst they're there. But then that time comes where they need to leave. And the players are earn, have been earning such earning money, which makes perfect sense within that city ecosystem. Very rarely do they go to another club that can afford to pay that type of wage. So before you know it, you're left with an asset where for a player, you could say you could argue and say the only way is down. I'm talking financially. But then the club aren't like other teams are put off because they think that you will always want that type of money. And an example of that, who's a good friend of mine, is somebody like Joe Hart, who was exceptional, I thought, for City. And then when the time came to leave, 
like in the last two three years, he struggled to find a club. And I think to myself, well, this is this was one of the best players in the Premier League. This is a guy who's won Premier League player uh, goalkeeper of the season, I think, three times. But people are saying, yeah, it's going to cost us too much. It's going to cost us too much. And that, unfortunately, is the gift and curse of being signed at City because it's great when things are going well. But when it comes time to leave, you know, you, the perceptions around you make your market in terms of where you can go, like, almost minute. And that's a shame for them because I think they deserve better. Yeah. I mean, the, the other side of all this as well, Chris, when you think about what City have achieved this season, like like we're saying in the first part of the, of, the, of the show, they've made a Champions League final, they've won a League and Cup double. And, you know, if the players aren't very happy, they have at least dusted themselves down and got on with the job and, and, and kind of that there are names on that list of players who have been playing regularly in the team. So it's almost a case of you maybe don't have to, maybe you don't have to like the situation, but it doesn't mean you can't give your best right now. Yeah, and that is testament to the professionalism. I think the, the sort of human factor is something that fans often overlook. Um, and Adam's alluded to it a lot. They see, I don't mean a lot. I'm not saying you're talking to it, <laughs> but you've made some really, some really good, um, valuable points about it. Even talking about the nerve situation of the final, people almost assume that. Well, we have a better squad and then we have a better manager than not might not be true but people assume that and you think it's just there for the taking and these you know they're they're individual human beings at the end of the day and it's if we'd have just won that game the people who hadn't been playing as much as they as they thought this season probably wouldn't have been available for negative sound bites to the extent that perhaps they have it's you know telling that this is coming out after we've lost and oh, Bernardo Silva's not well, of course they're not, but their, their whole mindset is going to be completely like nagged out at this stage. Even now, they probably can't wait to to get the Euro started and flush this out of the system. Um, I'm not I'm not overly concerned about about players being pissed off at the moment because. I want them to be not want them to be pissed off, but I, I I think it's a logical sort of mindset to be in, and um, you know, it would be weird if they weren't like that. Well, do you remember last season after the the Leon game when there was all this talk about the players weren't happy with Guardiola and they were getting stressed out with him and and all this kind of thing? And yeah, I, th- I think after a bad result after a, and it, it was a you know a very traumatic result, I guess in many ways, wasn't it? I think a lot of people are very upset about it and very hurt by. Like the Champions League final. And I think there's always going to be an element of backlash that comes out afterwards that you're going to hear these stories. It's not, it's not just um, you know, journalists stirring it a little bit. I think there is, there is always some truth to these things and there's always a time and a place for um, these stories to come out. So would we be having these conversations if we'd won the Champions League? Would we be talking about players being unhappy and all that kind of thing? I don't think so. It's just you know, when you're winning football, everything's wonderful, isn't it? And when you lose, everything's awful. That's just how it is, really, I guess. Um, I've got I've got something to say, actually, about that. So, uh, as you probably know, Dave, that article came from Sam Lee in The Athletic, didn't it? I think it was on Monday where it came out. But one thing about it, he spoke to me about that article as a concept a while ago. So the timing of it is what makes the narrative that little bit different. Because those players, you know, they've been unhappy because they've not had enough games, as much game time as they would have liked. That's been the case for a long time. But the timing of it, especially given the fact that they just lost the Champions League, makes it look worse. But then you ask yourself the question, if you have that article there, when is a good time to release it? You release it before, after they've won. And it's one thing, at least after they lost, it's another thing. But the, you know, the points in it were valid. And I think 
I was speaking to Sam about it earlier, actually, and he said, you know, it's, you should definitely go and read it. You should definitely go and read it. And like, yeah, yeah, I will do it at some point. But there is actually, there's, there's good information in there. And it's, as I say, it wasn't something whereby the players decided to come out and say something after losing the game because the bulk of it had already been done by that point, even though they were heading into a Champions League final. Yeah, just a, just a quick aside, Nedham. I think we, we can finally, I reckon, clear something up that, that a lot of City fans seem to worry about. Um, I always see on Twitter, uh, whenever there's a slightly negative story about City and, and, and there's, a, you know, there's a big game coming up, you, all, you always see the replies, oh, there's a big game coming up, trying to destabilise the club and, and all this sort of <laughs> stuff. Um, how, yeah. how much of that even gets to the dressing room? Um. I think it depends on the individual. There are lots of individuals who do live on Twitter and social media and things like that. But ultimately, a lot of them don't because they're just too busy doing other things. But the fact is, you know, for some of the stuff which you would read, you know the reality. That's the difference between, say, somebody reading who's outside the building versus someone who, who's in it. Like, if you read something that's true, you know, you're almost surprised, especially if it's a deep type article. But overall, especially, you know, even from my time at City when the money first came in, you know, we were a talking point, but City are a far bigger talking point now and a far bigger global brand. So lots of people share lots of opinions about you and everything that's going on. You've probably not got time to read the ball and people can say it's going to destabilise this and destabilise that. But, you know, as we've seen over the past four or five years, let's be clear, it makes literally no difference whatsoever because for the vast majority of the time, they've performed exceptionally. Whether someone said they're going to lose or someone said they're going to win, you know, so it doesn't, yeah, that stuff doesn't matter. I think that's more so just for the sort of theatre of Twitter sometimes where, <laughs> you know, something's the most outrageous or the best thing in the world ever today and, you know, come tomorrow, oh, it's an outrage. I can't believe you picked this team, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's a whole different world than players. They don't live there. They live in the real world. Yeah, Jack. We're, we're, let's look at the at the squad for 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 next season uh, because you've already alluded to um, some of the changes that they might need to make in a left back and a and a striker as well. Um, the other side of it is is that the striker situation. I mean, surely they can't just go out and buy you know for argument's sake Harry Kane or Erling Haaland. What needs to be done? Uh, no, there's mo- there's money for a striker without the need to sell anyone. They've People laugh at me when I've said this for a few months. They've basically been saving up for a striker. I know that sounds ridiculous because they've spent like pocket, like pocket money because <laughs> they've been spending quite a lot. You know, they've spent they spend a lot of money every summer, but they have they've got they have got a pot for a striker. Uh, and you look, you know, all right, Aguero left on a free transfer, but the wages that have been freed up by Aguero leaving the club are massive. The, which people kind of forget that he was getting upwards of two. I don't know how much he was on, to be fair, but it'd be upwards of two fifty a week, won't it? Um, two pound fifty <laughs> and a Fredo. Um, <laughs> so I think the, the striker, which I think will be Kane at this point, will get done. Um, but the the interesting things with the, the outgoings will be with the left back and the. And Grealish, which I, I think those probably will be able to, they'll be able to do them if players leave. But we don't know, like, we, we don't know whether players are going to leave or not because they're going to have those conversations with them and, and they'll sit them down and say, right, you're unhappy. What do you want to do? Do you want to, you can either go or you can go and do a John Stones. It's up to you. If you want to stay and fight for your place, then we're happy to have you, sort of thing. Um, so you kind of, I think people got, People got quite excited about it being a big churn of a summer when he said, I think he said to 
uh, Rio Ferdinand last week that you got shaken, you got to move or whatever. And I think people thought there was going to be like lots and lots going on. Uh, I think what he means by that was just like little subtle um, tweaks here, here and there, uh, rather than a massive, a massive overhaul. Because because they don't need they don't need to, do they? Yeah, I, I just I, I just want to ask you about Kane as well because you said uh, that you think it'll be Kane they go after. What, yeah, uh, how how likely is that? Because obviously he's he's contracted to Spurs and you know it's not going to be an easy it's not an easy easy sale for them to make, is it? Uh, no, but like from what you hear, Kane wants to go to City and isn't uh, that's his preferred destination. Um, a gentleman's agreement with uh, Levy, so what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> well, someone was saying to me the other day actually that Levy's not quite as bad as he's he's made out. Uh, and all right, he, the the Kyle Walker thing dragged on and on, but there's a suggestion that maybe it won't. He doesn't want to do that with Kane um, because he doesn't want to make a scene with Kane. Uh, but I don't know. The proof will be in the pudding, won't it? Um, I just think with Harland, I think Harland's just too just too difficult this summer which I don't really understand from Dortmund's perspective um, when they're going to lose him for 65 next next year why wouldn't you just take 100 this this season I, which seemed a bit odd to me that you would admit, you'd happily miss out on more than 35 million on a player that he's definitely going to go in the next 12 months yeah, um, Dan. Just uh, just for next season. Obviously, having not expected a lot at the start of this season and ending up with a, a league and cup double and a Champions League final. Uh, where should we set expectations for next season? Quadruple. Maybe. <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, yeah, I, I would expect us to be, uh, you know, favourites for the league after the season we've had. But I think it's going to be difficult. I think everyone's looking at Chelsea being better uh, than they were for the most part of this season and being a real challenger for that. Liverpool will be back as well, I'm sure. United might even sustain their challenge a little bit better this season. I mean, you always go into every season and think there's going to be four or five challenges, and it, it never really works out like that, does it? So um, it wouldn't surprise me if it was us and one other, maybe us and Chelsea or us and Liverpool or something like that. Um, I'd, I just hope we're part of that conversation. I think that's the, the best you can kind of ask for going into a season, really, that we, that we, that we challenge for the title and, and run it all the way. I would take a, a cup. Uh, you know, we've got to win the Carabao again, haven't we? Is it, is it the last year of the Carabao? If we confirm that, is, is the sponsorship ending? Are we going to end on a high as the only ever Carabao champions? Is that how? <laughs> I, I I haven't seen any reports anywhere that it's, that the deal has been extended. But you know, the the other one was done kind of on the quiet. So I I, I don't know. Maybe maybe we will get the uh, be the only ever uh, Carabao Cup winners. Yeah, Chris, yeah. Is, is that the, is that the kind of benchmark for you as a fan in a weird way? Because Carabao. Uh, Guardiola referenced it recently that, that they've got to win the Carabao Cup. Like, that's that's the what that's the the, the trophy. Well, it's just there's a certain romance to it now because we've kind of hammered it. Um, personally, I want it to be sponsored by Milk again. Like how how, how is that a sponsor Milk by <laughs> Farmers Union or something? I don't know. But yeah, benchmark uh, for next season. Got to be looking at the league, haven't we? It's just impossible to um, kind of gauge who's going to be where before the summer uh, transfers kind of happen really. And then you, you're looking at who's got who and even then, you know, you need a few games in and see who's gelling and stuff. But yeah, Chelsea are a worry. We've got to be looking at the league. Champions League. I mean, that's the, uh, that's the, the ultimate ambition, isn't it? I think uh, for the 
us as an organisation, as uh, our, our chairman puts it, which is fair enough. Yeah, Nedham, we uh, we've talked we talked a lot about this Champions League final. Dan's pretty confident of getting there again in the not too distant future. Uh, you said about obviously Chelsea been there three times in in twenty years. Um, it, it's hard, isn't it, to to kind of get a, a handle on how the Champions League will go because yeah, they go in as as they go into the the group as as number one seeds, but you know it's it, it all depends on how the draw forms out in the in the knockout stages, I guess. And City did well this year to get through some tough ties. Um, they might have it tough again next year. So what what should we expect and what should we hope for? Poor, you know that's. That's, that's a really good question because the way that I see the Champions League, you know, compared to the league, the FA Cup and so on, it's got so many variables, so many moving parts, you know. City, yes, as a one seed, they should be getting out of the group. Whoever's in their group, you expect that. I think that's fair. I think if they didn't, then you could say that's that's massively wrong. The next round, you'd, you'd like to think they stand a very, very good chance whoever they're playing against, if they say win it and so on. But it's just those later stages when you're looking at quarterfinals and stuff like that of a Champions League. Like the margins between every team, they're not they're not that great. And then you add in the fact that, say, for certain teams at certain points, their Champions League form doesn't necessarily reflect that reflect their league form. You know, you might be in the quarterfinal of a Champions League whilst facing a slump in your in the Premier League, but you're playing against a team who's on a high in their respective league. And you know, as I say, you'd normally expect to beat them, but instead, you know, it's a different sort of variable. So um, I don't know, but I just see teams like Bayern's. Traditionally, Real Madrid's um, traditionally Barcelona and all these teams who always get to like the last eight, they always get there, and then it's just dependent on who's in better form at that particular moment. And I think for City, that's always going to be my expectation. There's never a guarantee they'll make it to the final because they could have the hardest run in Champions League history to get there. But as I say, to be competitive and to always arrive at that final table. I think for me that that's the most important thing and that has to be the, the standard for them. You know, it's not just about getting out of a group. It's not just about winning that next round, you know. Be there and be one of those teams who we get used to seeing year in, year out in the important stages. And then hopefully, as I say, have a year like this year where, you know, because to be fair to City, I think this year they said that they won, for an English team, they won the most amount of games in the Champions League in history or something. I think they maybe drew one game and then won every other game and get into the final. Like, that's insane. And you don't expect that. But for City, like I say, they're capable of beat. I think they're capable of beating anyone over two legs. But who's to say that that's the sort of form that they're in in the domestic league at that particular time? But you know, they've got more than enough to get to those final stages. But yeah, just I just I'm happy seeing them there every single time, and I just hope that they don't get drawn against Bayern Munich with the second leg being at Bayern away and Bayern have just beaten a team 25 nil in the Bundesliga for the tenth week in a row. You know what I mean? That's those are the variables which you just can't account for. Because you can't see your path to the final, whereas say in England or whatever for a league, you can kind of see your path. You know what's going to happen in the in the cups and stuff. You know, this is you're number one in the league, so whoever you play will always be an underdog. But in Europe, you know anything goes, and sometimes it's a good thing when you're City. Sometimes it's a bad thing, unfortunately. You uh, you already know, don't you, Nedum, that uh, it's going to be uh, a draw against Barcelona and Sergio oh, Aguero's going to have a say. Don't, 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 don't be like that. Don't be like that. Like a fully motivated Sergio, like trying to prove a point to Pep and all this stuff. It's the last thing you, it's the last thing you need. It's the last thing you need. Check out exclusive City interviews on our website, bluemoonpodcast.com. We're going to take some questions uh, from the audience now. So if you have any questions to ask, then please do raise your hand and uh, I will unmute your microphone. Okay, so the first question is going to come from David Wang. David. 
Uh, hi guys, uh, just wanted to have a quick question. W wanted to see what your thoughts were about um, Khaldun uh, putting up a video today about uh, effectively an apology for the ESL, um, but he didn't seem to want to commit to any sort of additional uh, fan engagement like some of the other clubs like Spurs or, or Liverpool have suggested. Uh, from your perspective, do you think that uh, you know fan engagement uh, moving forward is necessary, or do you think that uh, the way that the club has been run so far, you know, with you know fairly minimal levels of fan involvement, I would say for big decisions like this, do you think that that is something that uh, the club needs to maybe revisit or look at? Now, Dan, I'm gonna I'll, I'll throw that one to you because we, uh, me, you, and Ned, and we're on a podcast straight after the ESL announcement. Um, how are you feeling about it all now? Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen Caldoun's video to be honest, so I can't uh, really comment fully on what he what he said there. Um, I mean, it's not the first time they've, they've apologised for this. They apologised the day after uh, they, they withdrew from the Super League, didn't they? So um, whether they apologised because they got called out and, you know, like all these clubs were left looking pretty embarrassed by it um, or whether they're genuinely sorry doesn't really matter. I mean, it's apologies is nice and I accept it in a way, but you need to see some actual action. You need to see some actual, uh, you know, recompense for what, what they did really and I do think fan engagement is the way forward I do think they need to sort of start listening to fans a little bit more about ticket prices and we need to push them hard you know we, it kind of feels like we, we've, we've got them on the ropes a little bit at this point in time and um, we shouldn't forget that we shouldn't just let this go and just you know forget that it ever happened and, and move on like uh, nothing happened we need to keep pushing them on all, all kinds of issues everything we want to see you know whether it be ticket prices or VAR or anything like that anything that we're we're annoyed about the club need to open the lines of communication a little bit better and um, realize what they did with it with the Super League was very ill-advised and very upsetting for the fans and I never want to go through something like that again as a fan of the club because it was really really disappointing behavior from them um, perhaps it's naive of me to be disappointed you know but uh, yeah I, th I think we, we need to move forward together as, as a fan base and as a club and um, talk about things a little bit more and be a little bit more open with each other. And if there was some sort of board representation, a fan on the board, if that was the way forward, then that would be something I would support. I'd, I don't know what other uh, ideas have been suggested, but yeah, I think I think there needs to be more communication, basically. The fan representation, sorry, the fan representation thing on the board is an interesting issue. And I think quite divisive, actually. And the club I support had a put a fan on the board about it must have been about 15 years ago and he basically became a stooge for the for the board and we came in for so much criticism from the supporters and was seen as a problem and actually I was talking to my dad about it the other day and it he like left he left his role on the board after about a year and actually the only thing he'd managed to achieve and this is honestly the only thing he managed to do was to get them to put shelves up on the concourse so you could rest your beer. <laughs> that was it. Great idea, to be fair. Yeah. But it just, it's just one of the, you've got to be careful with fan representation on the board because it is, they, they can be used as scapegoats. I don't think anyone wants that. Yeah. I, I was Chris, I was going to ask you in, in terms of how you're feeling about the, the ASL stuff now because um, I, I guess it's a lot easier to take when you've just seen your team win the Premier League and the, you know, the League Cup and you know, make a Champions League final, is it? It's quite easy to forget about all that stuff. Mm, well, possibly. Um, it's not something I want to forget. 
it's definitely something we need to be aware of. Um, that's that's a, a warning, isn't it? What's what's happened in terms of fan representation on the board? I don't know. So I mean, you could be all for it, and like Jack saying, the the fan that gets chosen, you're like, that guy's a dickhead. I don't like him. Like we don't want him on the board, <laughs> but. I mean, there is a discussion that needs to be had about the discussions that need to be had. We do need to be consulted <laughs> in more. For instance, if there was a poll to decide and it was just, you know, just shoved out there, do you want to join a European Super League? It'll be uh, historically elitist, uh, blah, blah, blah. Everyone would have gone, absolutely, 100% not. There's something to be said for the fact that I think we were the last on board and the first out, um, it did seem a little bit like, oh God, we're going to be left at the station as the grass grows over the, uh, you know, the, the tracks here as the, tra- you know, waving goodbye to the, the European super choo choo. Um, so <sighs> edit that out. Um, <laughs> but, no, staying in, sorry, no, staying no, in, yeah, we're going yeah, full. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, we do need to be discussed. I was on a, I was actually on a fans represent, representation or some sort of fans forum. It was called. Um, it was, it was started when we were at Main Road, and it carried on. It might still be going now, but it doesn't sound like it. But um, there were weird sort of consultations there, and I remember I the last one I ever went to was at the new stadium which I'll probably be calling it for the next, well, until I die. Um, <laughs> but they, they they brought out these placards and they were saying like, what do you, they brought out these buzzwords and they wanted our reactions to these words. And I eventually twigged that it was um, like a, these were words that Budweiser used on on their adverts. And I was like, excuse me, is this just a shameless marketing exercise for Budweiser? Um, so we're all going to react positively to these words and then you're going to import, you're going to put Bud in the, in the bars, which I didn't really fancy. And um, someone literally, I saw someone go, whispering someone's a, there's a cross made on the list, never invited back. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know. Back to the original point, we we do need more consultation. I don't think that a fan on the board is necessarily the right, right way to, to represent that. But um, obviously you need to consult us because if you don't, that happens and that's bad. Yeah. The, the other way that people are talking about is the, the sort of 50 plus one uh, thing that works, you know, in Germany very well. Uh, and I do think there has to be an element of, you've got to be careful what you wish for with that kind of thing. I think it is quite unique to German culture that that works so well, but you know, the takeover that we had would never have happened if the 50 plus one rule was in place. Our team wouldn't be the team it is if the 50 plus one rule wasn't in place. You know, the best players in the world don't go and play for Eintracht Frankfurt because the money isn't in the Bundesliga and the standard as a whole is quite poor. So I think you do, uh, it's, it's, it's not something that I'd be totally against sort of moving towards, but I don't know how it would work in, in the Premier League and, and with our club. And this German model thing, Bayern just hoover up all the best players in Germany, like, and that's supposed to be what some sort of something to aspire to. Yeah, well, what one of their fan owners is the guy who owns Mercedes Benz, I believe. So you know, it's, uh... <laughs> it's handy. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Nedum, you, uh, you you've been. Um... Uh, we talked about the, the the Super League back in um, back when it, I can't remember when it happened now, but it was a couple of months ago. Um, how do you reflect on it all now? Um, oh, that's, a, that's a good question. It's a good question. I think initially, like I'm somebody who will just like sit back and wait to see how things actually pan out before throwing 
my sort of two cents in there with a, with a ton of emotion because I know when an emotional reaction will come. But, you know, lots of people did and rightly so because what was going on was something which goes against what they believed in in terms of the game of football itself. But I, um, you know, overall, I listened to what the ESL teams were trying to say, listened to what fans were trying to say. And to be honest, you know, whether we like it or not, I think as fans, there were certain elements in which ESL, certain things which ESL were saying, which would have actually benefited people based on issues which they'd addressed in the past. Because, you know, like I think I said on our show, it's such, a, it's such an interesting spot to hear, especially in the Champions League, fans, not, not you guys, but people who I know who won't watch City unless they're playing a big game in Europe. They will not do it. And then someone says, well, we're going to present all these big games in Europe. And says, no, I'm not going to watch that. I'd rather watch the game which I wasn't watching. You know what I mean? There are elements within it like that. So it was interesting to hear. But then to listen to um, potential ways to remedy this situation for the future, this, that's when you realise how like football's reached a point where the remedy is almost impossible because we can talk about polls and stuff like that. But the poll is better when you have a greater sample size. But how do you reach out to all those people who are, invested, who are essentially stakeholders within a football club, especially one that's the size of Man City now? Because gone are the days where the, the fan base was essentially based inside an M postcode. You know, this is a full global entity of a football club now. Um, and then you can have, say, the fan on the board situation. But, you know, not all fans have the same voice and think the same way. You know, I've heard a ton of different arguments about the system itself. But yeah, this is this is this is where we are. And there's I don't know, it was it was crazy to see it happen. But one thing which I took strength from as a city fan, firstly the, in the fact that to that point our ownership has brought us to a place which we never thought imaginable. And overall I had no issues whatsoever with anything that they've done to that point, you know, from even investment into the local communities, all that type of stuff. Um, but they on the Saturday, I think it was, when the statement came out certain numbers of owners went out and put their name forward and said certain things. And I thought the silence of the city owner not saying something and Abramovich not saying something, I thought that was deafening because it kind of felt as if they weren't all on board with it. But with those big clubs at that lead table, there's a type of, they, you know, they could work as individuals, but they work far better as a collective. So then lo and behold, the next day, if one team pulls out, all the other teams are going to have to pull out again. And thankfully yeah. from our side in terms of what City was or what City is, the owner, you know, he made a mistake in terms of thinking that was the right thing to do. But first, we don't necessarily know what the other option was on that big table. You know, we know what it is from our perspective. But, you know, what was going on at Bayern? Why didn't they join? Why didn't this other team join? And I've heard rumours to say, for example, that say Bayern and PSG, I think the two teams that also didn't join. Like they, they're very much against City. They hate the City model. So for City, maybe it was a case of we're going to go and have to stick with these guys who hate us or go with those guys who love us and, you know, maybe we'll have to go together. But anyway, I'm not trying to justify it because it's unjustifiable. But yeah, um, it was, as I say, it was very, very interesting. That silence was deafening. And then lo and behold, they were on the first teams to pull out. And as a consequence, you know, you look at look across the look across the road and you see Man United and they're in total disarray, total shambles. But then for us, up until, you know, Saturday night, We'd won the Premier League and we're heading to a Champions League final with an ownership who'd support us and given us this opportunity. And even though we won't forget that time in the ESL, you know, it's also very hard to forget all the other stuff that came with it. Whereas for the others, they don't necessarily have that. Yeah. Uh, well, let's take uh, another question now. This is uh, Trev Slattery. Uh, Trev. Hi, guys. Um, very good discussion there. I just The City Matters group, I think, 
are still in in um, operation, and I think that's as close as you're going to get to a, a fan based group in any way, shape, or form. I think they get some bit of leeway, not a whole lot, but it isn't a fan on the board. But I, I think we're already ahead of the game in that respect. Uh, just and my question was quite simply: the left back abyss that we never seem to fill. I've enjoyed Zinchenko this season, but what's the block on an actual left back coming to the club? at any stage or any thoughts on that yeah Jack I'll, uh, I'll put that one to you, uh, you know sorry what? Mike <laughs> I honestly hate transfer stories I can't stand them it's like I understand that it's a part of my job that I have to do but they are so difficult like you can be right at 8 o'clock in the morning on something with a transfer and it can be wrong by half past 9 in the morning but you've already published something and then everyone turns around and goes, well, you were wrong. So, <laughs> but like you kind of have to do it. And it is so, it, they're so difficult and you never know who to trust and whatever. But the left back wise, it's Mendy's the problem. Like the, he was clearly available last summer and they didn't, I know for a fact, they didn't have a single phone call about Mendy last summer. Not even anyone just wanting to see what his situation was. which is not a single call. Um, and I think he's got two years left on his contract. I did, uh, I mean, it's just been a possibly the worst. Not, And it's not all his own fault because the injuries were horrible, horrible injuries and have impacted on him massively. But it's, it has been one of the worst signings over the last 10 years. Um, and because of the money he earns... I think they found it difficult to to get someone in because um, it's difficult to justify having three three left backs because we now consider Zinchenko as a as a full time left back, don't we? And I, I've really enjoyed I've really enjoyed watching Zinchenko over the over the years because I think he's he epitomises what being a footballer is about. I think he's um, kind of people tell you you're not good enough, and the club tried to sell him at least twice. And he turned around and went, no, I want to be here. I want to fight for my place, much like Stones did last summer. Um, and it's quite heartening to see him play at the level he's playing at now. Yeah. I, uh, I do fact- wonder, sorry, I kind of ducked the question there. I think they, I think they might do a, almost a stopgap this summer and then address it properly next summer if they are to do anything. Yeah. Um, I'm going to try and squeeze a few more questions in. So uh, let's uh, go to Greg. Greg. Um, so I'm presuming everyone that saw Zabaleta and company getting involved with the fans on Saturday. So my question is, who in the current squad do you think, after they've left, would you know do the same thing and get involved as they did? Uh, so let's fire through you on that one, guys. So, uh, Chris, uh, who do you think? Current squad? I don't know. Uh, probably Zinchenko. Um, maybe... Maybe Diaz, I don't know. Um, looking through, well, kind of hardcore professionals, aren't they? Foden, <laughs> Dan. Any any other names to throw in the pot? Do you reckon? <laughs> my my first thought was Diaz. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a tough one, isn't it? Because we're sort of at that point now where we're sort of we've we've said goodbye to one group of legends, and we're sort of wondering who's going to be our. Are we ever going to feel the same way about a group of players again? Maybe Kevin De Bruyne might sort of, you know, he's he's been at the club a long time now and been captain and taken the club to his heart, I think, and 
he's someone who you might see sticking around for a long time. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe one day we'll be sitting on a Blue Moon Live podcast with Kevin De Bruyne in a few years. I, uh, I I somehow suspect that I'm not going to manage to pull that one off, but you know, uh, <laughs> you never know. I, I've, uh, I've I've managed some things in my life, and uh, yeah, yeah, we'll go. Uh, Nedum, any uh, any ideas? Who who would you like to see from the current squad uh, joining uh, joining the fans? Um, I'd tell you who I think would would you would see there. I'd see you'd expect to see sort of some of the English guys. I'd see John Stones, Carl Walker, at 100. percent Like I was in the fan zone on Saturday with Kevin Horlock, and he was well in the mix as well. I think he was drunk as a skunk by about 11 o'clock. <laughs> and to be fair to those two, you know, I see that. I see that within their personalities because they are good professionals, but they've still got that little bit of something, that little bit of old school in them as well. So I'll throw those two in there first of all, I think. Yeah. Jack, any, anybody else to finish on? Well, they like, they're, they're a squad that likes a booze up, don't they? Mm. Like, they like a drink. Um, I think uh, Phil. I mean, it's like, He's gonna be. He's gonna play for the club for the next 14, 15 years, and he's he's gonna be like absolute superstar. Uh, and he's gonna be talked about in the same in the same way that people talk about like Bell and people like that. It's um, he'd be right in the mix, yeah. right in the middle of it. Yeah. Uh, final question of the night. I'm gonna to throw to Tony Burns. Tony. Hiya. Uh, yeah. Just, it's, it's just a, a, a quick question, really. Through the pandemic, one of the things that's become well, that was shown to be completely obvious was the value of fans in the stadium. So we all watched the games on, on the on the telly and some of us preferred it with uh, the artificial sound or some with no sound. And then we get to the last game of the season when, um, you know, 10,000 fans at the Etihad and so on. And I was fortunate to get a ticket. And we see, I think it was Burnley who didn't charge the fans and City... Did charge, and I mean, I paid thirty-six pounds for a ticket, which I was sort of fine about, and so on. But I just wonder, given the the value of the fans, where do you think City will pitch the season tickets and the ticket pricing next season, as they aim to get back to a full stadium? And and you've touched on it tonight about the the value of playing in front of fans. Yeah, um, Dan. It's it's a discussion that we have all the time. You, we, you know, I mean, you talked about it before about um, like engagement with the fans on things like ticket prices as well. Um, there's been pretty much year on year rise on, on on season ticket prices, apart from I think one freeze the year that Guardiola arrived. Um, how do you see it going? They they surely can't put ticket prices up again, having just you know having had an empty stadium for a season. Can they not? <laughs> no, I'd, I'd certainly like to think not. Yeah, I mean that would be a that would be a nice way to show a bit of contrition for the Super League stuff, wouldn't it? Um, by reducing ticket prices or at the very least freezing them. Um, and yeah, Tony's absolutely right. The the value of the fans has never been more evident than than it has been during this time. And it's it feels so much better to watch a game with actual people in the crowd, a real atmosphere. You know, what was all that fake crowd noise about? I think we'll look back on that in a few years and think, what what were we thinking? Like, why, why did anyone think that was a good idea? It's ridiculous, wasn't it? So uh, yeah, I think I think the club have definitely uh, got to offer the fans something uh, after this very difficult time and. You know, the relationship has been a bit frayed. Um, a, a, a nice little reduction on, on season ticket prices would be a wonderful gesture as far as I'm concerned. You know, there was a lot of talk about the Sheikh Mansour putting on the flights to Porto um, a little while ago, uh, which was a nice gesture, but not enough for me. So I would like to see some, some genuine hand-in-pocket stuff from the club at this point. 
I was just going to say, in terms of, um, say, the Burnley side of things, like, I don't want to finish the, finish this on a negative, but I kind of have to. For Burnley, they've got new ownership. And for them, it's almost like a big gesture to the fans from the get-go to almost try and create an image for themselves to move forward with. So I wouldn't necessarily compare that to, say, other teams who, or the clubs who were charging fans to go to games. And then as well, you know, some of the places I've been to, they tend to... Um, they tend to make the prices lower and lower when they know that nobody's going to turn up. So ultimately, you know, it's a, it's a gift and a curse having a, having a stadium and a football team which people want to see. Because unfortunately, you know, at times they do like to drive up those prices. But, you know, if you want to go to somewhere where you can find space, you can get one ticket and have a free seat next year. You know, you might end up somewhere where the price is just that little bit cheaper. Chris, uh, in terms of uh, of your season ticket, I mean, you, you said before you can't wait to get back and uh, and, and see your mates at the game, that sort of thing. Um, what, what do you stand on the on the prices a little? I think um, it's there are kind of two sides where people say like, oh well, you know, you've, we're we're really good. Um, you, you should be expecting a price rise, but we literally don't need to do it is my take on it we just literally don't need to do it just have really really competitive like impressively grand gesture style competitive um, season tickets and uh, I, su- I su- suspect the books will still balance yeah uh, right well that brings us to an end for this year's uh, podcast live so thank you very much for listening and uh, thank you to my guests for tonight Chris Higginbottom thank you very much Dan Burke my pleasure Jack Gorn. Thank you very much. And of course, Neda Manua. Pleasure like always. Uh, We've a special show coming up next week, uh, so keep an eye out on the feed for that one. Uh, And after that, we'll be back for the Community Shield in August. So enjoy your summer and we'll see you then. Take care. the blue moon podcast please support the show patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast